This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, we'll bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and a lot more. In this week's broadcast, a special focus on the future of Europe's most important economy. We are talking, Carol, of course, about Germany. That's right, Jason. Politics, the auto industry, Deutsche Bank, they are all under threat in Germany. Plus, we'll look at why thousands of Dominicans are hunting for a treasure that may not exist. It's this week's cover story. It is a must-read, a gripping tale. Joe Nocera really delivering <laughs> there. But first, Carol, there's a deadline quickly approaching. So, Jason, not like anyone probably needs a reminder, but of course, Monday is the deadline for filing uh, your federal income taxes unless you get an extension. Uh, In the politics section, we kind of look into this. Well, and this is top of mind in part because of all the talk of taxes a year and a year and a half ago. Now we're starting to see the fruits of all that. Joe Light has been looking at this for us down in Washington, tracking it closely. All right. Tax day is upon us, Joe. What are people finding? Yeah, well, we took a look at who the real winner of the 2017 tax law was. And it turns out, and perhaps this isn't a huge surprise, but it was very wealthy people and in in particular uh, chief executives, you know, the owners of the world, um, people who benefited the most from the from the corporate tax cut, things like the corporate tax cut and the pass through deduction. I mean, it turns out I mean, the tax law, to be clear, the tax law helped uh, everybody. I mean, the vast majority of people got a tax cut, despite what people um, might be seeing with their uh, uh, t- tax refunds. But the but the biggest winner overall were definitely the the millionaires and multimillionaires of the world. And why is that? I mean, from mm. from the broadest perspective, why are they winning? Um, well, there are a couple reasons. Uh, one, the, the the biggest reason is the cut in the corporate tax rate from thirty five percent to twenty one percent. And the way to think about that is that the uh, tax, tax savings from something like that flow through to the people who own those businesses. And most of those businesses are owned by the, uh, by the very wealthy. So it's very difficult to have a cut in the corporate tax rate without that flowing through the wealthiest people in the country. Um, I, I don't know if you remember, but back uh, right when Trump named him as his nominee for Treasury Secretary, uh, Stephen Mnuchin said that he wanted the whatever tax reform they came up with to not result in an absolute tax cut for the wealthy. But uh, the tax experts I spoke to said that the minute they heard that, they knew that they wouldn't be able to follow through. And that's, that's simply because of this corporate tax rate cut. You can't do a huge cut to the corporate tax rate without those benefits accruing to you know, rich people, essentially. And so, Joe, talk to us about partnerships, because that's something you know, near and dear to many of our viewers and listeners' hearts. They're part of them or certainly understand how those work. How does this affect them? Sure. Yes. Yeah, so the, the other big benefit to um, corporate owners that came from the, from the tax law was a, a deduction on pass-through income. So basically, if you have a partnership like an LLC, um, you are, uh, you're not paying corporate tax rates. Instead, you're um, paying tax at your marginal income tax rate. And what the tax law did is allowed owners of such businesses to um, deduct 20, 20% of their income you know, right, right off the top, um, and as long as you were, weren't in certain service-related uh, industries. So I mean, what that does in effect is for people who are in these partnerships, they get to tuck their, uh, cut their tax bill by, um, by a fifth. And then the other interesting thing about that uh, deduction is that Congress excluded certain industries. So if you're, um, if you're a doctor, for example, or a lawyer, um, you know, other service-related industries that, um, uh, that use a pass-through, you don't get that deduction at higher income levels. But in other industries, like commercial real estate in, in particular, um, they preserve the deduction, which is going to result in a huge benefit to those owners. So, all right, Jason and I are laughing here. Uh, and, and forgive me, but you've got to talk about your story because you do have a hypothetical example of an individual, a rich person in real estate. And I'm like, uh, anybody in mind? But tell <laughs> yeah. us a little bit about why you chose to do this. <laughs> and are you yeah. specifically targeting the president or are you just saying this is really kind of how the law plays out? Uh, no, I mean, we, we, we definitely did not start with the... Uh, with the premise of, of targeting anybody in particular. I mean, rather, I interviewed, you know, probably a, a, around a dozen um, tax experts just asking for, you know, if you were to come up with a hypothetical person uh, who was the winner from the tax law. And again, this doesn't mean that 
um, you know, lower income people didn't benefit. You know, the, va the vast majority of Americans got some sort of um, tax cut. Well, you know, we asked these people, you know, who would you, who would you come up with? And, and almost, almost to a T, they, they came up with these attributes. Somebody who has a huge um, stock portfolio, somebody who um, owns, uh, is entrepreneurial and owns, you know, pass-through businesses, maybe in commercial real estate, not just because of this pass-through deduction issue, but because, you know, Congress did other things, like they created these opportunity zones, which um, if you invest in certain, you know, kind of lower income areas, you get to defer and sometimes avoid um, uh, capital gains, gains taxes. And, and so the, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it ended up being a person that looks a lot, a lot like the president. And actually, I spoke to somebody who was involved in the, the development of the, the tax law. And not only did he agree, um, you know, with the kind of profile of the taxpayer I just outlined, he said that that was definitely not, at least from what he saw, he was the deputy assistant secretary for tax policy while, mm -hmm. the, while the law was being developed. At least from what he saw, you know, that wasn't intentional. And, right. and, and basically, he said that that wasn't you know, things were much too hairy to even pull that off if, if, that, if they wanted to do that. And that's Joe Light from Bloomberg. And Carol, what I like about this story is it really starts to put some numbers around that tax cut, so much rhetoric around it. But now we know how it's actually playing out. Right. Who's being impacted and what it really means. So fascinating, uh, an in-depth look at that tax overhaul legislation. So there's a quote in this next story that we're going to get into about how the entire U.S. grocery sector is hurtling towards a day of reckoning. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Unless you're a fan or an employee, apparently, of Wegmans. <laughs> exactly. Matt Boyle is here with us. Wegmans well-known to a certain mm -hmm. subset of yes. shoppers here in the Northeast, but what is it all about? For those people who don't know what a Wegmans is, yeah, and what is it? lots of those people. Yeah. So <laughs> imagine you combine the breadth and the size of a Walmart, the product quality of a Whole Foods, and the kind of quirky, kooky appeal of Trader Joe's. You put all that in a blender, you get Wegmans, basically. It's triple threat, as it's you said. It's the triple threat, exactly. I was looking for what companies are sort of, you know, you never want to say immune to this retail uh, apocalypse we're seeing, but who are the most resistant to it? And Wegmans is, you know, that uh, more than anyone else. They And it's because of the experience they deliver in the stores. And Matt, we know the big grocery store chains, right? Everybody knows a lot of them yeah. are publicly held kind of thing. Um this is not. Yeah, Wegman. I mean, blink and you miss it. They only have nine billion in sales. They only have ninety-eight stores. They're which private. Is private, family-run for uh, four generations. Um, so you know, they have fewer stores than Walmart has in New York alone. Huh. So there, yeah, there's a lot of people who are like, you know, so when Wegmans comes to town, a lot of people are often, well, what's a Wegmans? Well, you know, and then they realize why are people getting so excited about this place? Why are people camping out the <laughs> night before they open a store, like waiting for an iPhone? But you really do have to experience. So you have to be in the store, interact with the employees who are so well-trained, look at the food displays, you know, and then look at the prices as well, which are no higher than your average supermarket. So that's really what is, you know, so special about this. It's not like some highfalutin, you know, hot cuisine place for only the, the 1%. $30 you, watermelons. Yeah, you can, get, you can get your Coke and your Cocoa Puffs there. But if you want, you can sit down and have a restaurant-quality meal as well. All right. So the news hook here is... Coming to Brooklyn. Yes. Uh, part, a, a bold expansion, a bold play, uh, as it were. The Navy Yards, is that the right? The Navy Yard, For, yes. Uh, locals I mean, a lot of New us. Yorkers don't even know yeah. right, the Navy Yard. Where, Where is exactly? this? It's in the north, sort of northwest corner of Brooklyn. It's a former shipbuilding. It's a yeah. military base. I mean, the USS Missouri was built there. The USS Maine. Remember the Maine? Yeah. You know, yeah, was, yeah. was built there. Um, but it was, of course, decommissioned, as we no longer needed um, as, as many ships after World War II. And then it just sort of lay vacant for years. And eventually the city took it over from the federal government. But where the Wegmans is going is this one area in, the, in a corner of the Navy Yard called Admiral's Row, where the officers had their quarters. And that had been completely desolate. It was really an eyesore. I mean, people were afraid to walk past huh. it. It was just overgrown. Um, and so 
eventually, though, in 2015, um, the city entity that manages the Navy Yard awarded uh, the development contract to uh, Doug Steiner. And you might know him from Steiner Studios, mm-hmm. which is the massive film production uh, studio that's also in the Navy Yard uh, right now. And he had worked with Wegmans once or twice before, so he knew them. He knew they would be a great tenant. Mm. But the challenge is Wegmans has never been in a major metro area before you know they have stores on the outskirts of boston they have stores in rochester but you know rochester is not brooklyn but they've been creeping their way i feel like they have they've been creeping their way south right and they also know they've been doing some interesting experiments like last year they opened their first store in a mall they took over a former jc penny in a mall in natick massachusetts now this is not a dying mall you know this mall had a a tesla dealership so but still it's difficult to put a grocery store in a mall because nobody goes to the mall for food you know can you imagine lugging home cantaloupes with your gap you know (laughs) uh, jeans and stuff but they made it work you know they had a a separate entrances they had an escalator cart because they had to put the store in two levels was this the place where there was a big to do when they opened up like every time do a musical or something well that was earlier actually exactly yeah so this is their latest store in massachusetts but in their first store in massachusetts which was in a town called northborough um they took the town by storm so much so that yeah a, a high school drama teacher wrote a musical about <laughs> Wegmans after she heard that a couple had gotten engaged there. Oh, my goodness. And during a winter storm, Wegmans generators were on and nobody else had power. So it be kind of it added to the cult appeal that already existed. And she's like, what's up with this place? She knew nothing about it. But, of course, she had friends who were from Rochester. So, and she had some students, though, who worked there. So they just sort of started improving and mm. and writing, and she wrote some song parodies. You know, it's not like she penned an opera here. Right. I mean, she took existing songs and replaced the words. But it kind of takes it to this. But oh, yeah. certainly, level. you know, if you're thinking of, you know, if you're going to stage anything about the U.S. retail industry right now, it would probably be a Shakespearean tragedy, right? right. Not a peppy musical, <laughs> you know, with songs from Rent and and Les Mis. So that sort of is just added to the appeal. There's a video floating around on YouTube of this musical, and it was just redone last year. And I went to it, which was hilarious. Um, they redid it in the auditorium with a bigger cast, more songs. Some Wegmans people <laughs> See, were there. This is a big deal. Yeah. So where they exist, they are a big deal, and yeah. the people who follow them and love them are known as Weg maniacs. Of course, they are. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> how confident are they that they're going to get enough Weg maniacs in Brooklyn? I mean, Brooklyn. Yeah, it, it, exactly. It's a tougher tough. market. It's a tougher market for so yeah. many reasons. Yeah. Physically, it's tough. Mm-hmm. You know, people are used to, as you've alluded to sort of pulling their exactly. cars up and loading up There's a lot of going. challenges in Brooklyn. Rents are high. Rents are high, not the least of where the Navy Yard is in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. It is isolated. Climate it's cut off by the BQE. Stuff, yeah. You know, the, yeah, the Navy Yard was flooded after Hurricane Sandy, so they've had to do a lot of archite- architectural huh. um, design changes for this. And then, you know, they have the unfamiliarity, and you have people who are perfectly happy going to Whole Foods and Trader Joe's and Fairway and even Gristidi's and D'Agostino, and the list goes on and on. Um, but that said, there's a lot about the New York City grocery market that is ripe for disruption as well. Well, that's what... So let's get to that because everybody constantly points to Amazon, right? Especially yeah. when they bought Whole Foods, the whole grocery industry was like, wait, what? Yeah. You know, what's going on here? So can they compete against the likes of Amazon and a Costco and a Walmart? They can because look, I mean, yeah, that's the thing. It's not just Amazon. We cannot just distill it down right. to, oh, look at Amazon. Amazon only has, you know, a couple of percentage points of the U.S. grocery market. Walmart has 20%. Mm-hmm. Now, they're not going to go up against Walmart per se in New York City, but they are going to go up against Jet, which Walmart owns. They're going to go up against Fresh Direct, which I've used for decades. It's an excellent mm-hmm. online grocery service. They're going to go up against Instacart which is the service that tags on to existing physical grocers for home delivery. So that's the challenge, I think, long-term Wegmans faces because they are using Instacart. Wegmans today, you can order online from Wegmans and the Instacart people will pull up. But that's what I see as their challenge because once you you have this vaunted reputation and then you outsource it right. mm-hmm. to these digital guys, you know, if an online order is screwed up at Wegmans, they're going to blame Wegmans, not right. Instacart. Right. That's Matt Boyle. And Jason, you know, this is my must read of the week, just because Wegmans, it's not a well-known chain, certainly across uh, the country when it comes to uh, grocery chains. But what's fascinating, it's a tough industry and they have figured out how to do it well. So Jason, college students we know have a lot of choices when it comes to figuring out how to pay their way through school. There's scholarships, there's private loans, there's government loans, and then there's one more. There is indeed 
Wall Street, you know, they find a way into everything, but there's a huge opportunity here because Mm -hmm. the amount of student debt that those guys are taking on is so big. Claire Boston, she's got the story. So what led you to this story? Because you cover debt in general, right? I do. Um, So I look at student debt. I look at mortgage debt, um, pretty much the whole universe of consumer debt. Um, And, you know, when you look at student debt, uh, it's basically a crisis in America. So I've always been really fascinated with what is going to happen to this It's been a crisis for a while, right? I feel like we've been talking about it and it doesn't get any better. Yeah. I mean, college costs keep going Mm -hmm. up. No one really knows how to fix the problem. And because so much of this debt is tied to the government, investors aren't that concerned. So it's very weird. We're seeing this affect the economy in really big ways, but people think they're going to get paid back. And so there's not sort of a big crisis in the finance world, at least at this point. However, it's really bad news for students. And so a lot of enterprising companies are trying to figure out a way to make this process better for students. How can they take on less debt? And uh, one proposal that is catching on a little bit is income sharing agreements. So ISAs. ISAs, yes. So instead of taking out a $10,000 loan, maybe you would basically have $10,000 fronted to you and then pay that back once you're out in the real world with a percentage of your income. Let's say maybe you might pay 5% of your income for a period of eight years after you graduate. So there's so many things that are interesting about this story. (laughs) Purdue is one of the sort of name schools that has started to adopt this. Tell us how it works there. Yeah, so Purdue has been doing this for a couple of years now. Um, their president, Mitch Daniels, is really passionate about trying to make education affordable. And this is a program that they thought might be able to help with that. And so what they're doing is uh, they have a program open to juniors and seniors. Um, and if you are interested, you can just apply. Uh, they want you to have taken out all the government loans that you can take. They don't try to have a rate that's as mm. good as what the government gets you. But they're trying to be competitive with more like a private student loan. Mm-hmm. And so um, if you're an English major, chances are you at Purdue will pay a little bit higher of a percentage of your income than an engineer, say. And that's based on... That was one of my favorite parts of the story, actually, (laughs) as a former English major, you know, looking at that and being like, okay, well, they don't think I'm going to make a lot of money. Yeah, they have a lot of uh, research on what their grads make in their first years out of school, and that's kind of how they tried to price it. You know, they don't want to stick students with these massive payments, so they kind of look and say, okay, where can we, what percentage of your income will you pay if you want to have like a two or $300 a month payment? So what happens if you lose your job? or you're out of work for a while. Yeah, so when I talk to students about this, this is something that they say really stands out to them about ISAs. Um, If you lose your job, as long as you're out there looking for a new one in good faith, you basically are on pause. You don't have time added on the other end, and you're not also making payments. Whereas with a student loan, you're going to have to pay no matter whether or not you're employed. Wow. And so Wall Street, because they like to securitize everything, <laughs> uh, has found a way to get into this in a, in a relatively meaningful way, a growing way, right? Exactly. Yeah. There um, are some hedge funds out there that are figuring out, um, can I buy these? And uh, the answer at some schools is yes. Um, Purdue has a program where they um, basically bring a whole bunch of these into pools and let uh, they take outside money. Um, they funded about $17 million worth of outside investor money into these. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a growing area. Um, I've been talking to some investors. They're kind of more ESG almost. That's where there's a bit of interest. Because wow. if you think about it, you know, if you view student loans as a crisis, right. you know, maybe this is a social program that could change that. What about, you know, one thing that jumped out at me is, was it Blackstone in the story that they're looking into this? Yes. Yeah, so executive right. vice chairman of Blackstone, Tony James, has um, started his own institute, the Education Finance Institute, basically devoted to studying this. So he is really personally interested in this and uh, really kind of wants to be a leader in this space. You know what I also thought was interesting in the stories? You have a comparison, right? Something that Yale did. Was it in the 1970s? Tell me about that experiment. Yes. So um, people that have been around a long time, when they hear ISAs, they might start to cringe. Um, That's because the first time it was really experimented with on a broad scale was in um, the 70s at Yale, and they had some issues. Um, The way that that program worked was very different than uh, the way it does today. But what they did is they pooled these students in these risk pools, and you were going to have to pay money uh, back toward those income sharing agreements until everyone in your pool had paid out. And it created kind of classic adverse selection problems. And 
went on for a long time, it sounds like. Yes, yes. So the idea was this is going to last no more than 35 years. We're going to get people out. And that's a long time to begin with. Yeah. But um, what happened is students defaulted over the years. Um, Some of the wealthiest students found a way to buy their way out of the pool. So you're left with kind of poorer students in these pools or people with, you know, less ability to repay. Right. And um, eventually everyone had paid back many, many times what they'd borrowed. And Yale just said, okay, we're going to have to scrub this program. We're just going to forgive you guys. And that's Claire Boston. What a fascinating story, Carol. Mm -hmm. You know, we love Wall Street, but also, you know, college has become so front of mind, both because of the time of the year, because of the college admission scandal. And this is definitely a new twist. Yeah. And I love that Wall Street just kind of figuring out another option to maybe help out students and also pack in some gains. So, Jason, let's get to the cover story of the magazine this week. It is an unbelievable tale about two families in the Dominican Republic that are searching for ancestral gold. You've got a lawyer, you've got banks, uh, and we've got a great reporter telling it. Well, Joe Nocera, I mean, I saw his byline and immediately said, I'm in, (laughs) but really having no idea what I was going to find. And man, I couldn't put it down. Right. And it all started when someone reached out to Joe several years ago. Here's the story. All right. So, Joe, Take me back to the the beginning. You get a call. You get a lot of calls. You're a well-known journalist. You've been doing this for a long time. Why do you take this one? There, I, I almost can't even explain it. There was I, First of all, I picked up the phone and I got the guy live. And I didn't have the heart to just say, I don't care. Goodbye. And he was telling me he needed to meet me, that he needed to have a cup of coffee with me because uh, he needed to, to tell me about his story. So... I had a cup of coffee with him, and he unravels this incredible tale about how, for five generations, his family, the Guzmans, had known that they have an incredible inheritance in Switzerland and Spain, because their great-great-great-whatever had a boat and used to take mine gold, and they really do mine gold in the Dominican Republic, used to mine the gold in the DR, and they would take it to Spain, they'd give some to the king as his tribute, and they put the rest in the bank. And all through the generations, they've always known this or believed it or whatever you want to say. And so um, I actually helped them hook up with a lawyer. The lawyer investigated it for about a year, came back and said, there's no there there. And so he sort of gave up for a couple of years. And then suddenly he comes back and says, hey, Joe, it's back on again. Right. And because he's found a guy or a guy has his, found him. His cousin, who was so obsessed with the inheritance, moved to the DR And was looking up, you know, genealogical documents to help prove the claim. And then he somehow bumps into this lawyer, Johnny Portreal, who's looking up for an inheritance for another family, a bigger family, a family of about 20,000 people, the Rosarios. And somehow says, well, I, I, I've connected to the Guzman fortune, too. Right. So and, now now the hunt is on. And this is the guy who becomes the center of your story. Johnny Portorial is the center of the story. That's right. So tell us about the first time you meet him uh, there in Santo Domingo. So I go to Santo Domingo and, you know, we're in this really kind of rough and tumble neighborhood. It's not where the high, high-toned lawyers are. And uh, his building is half falling apart. The stairs are actually outdoors. <laughs> there's a spot. It almost looks as if the third floor was offices that they poked a hole in the ceiling of the second floor. And you have to go up the spiral staircase. So, so, and, the, and, and you get up to the spiral staircase and there's a guy with a submachine gun standing there, his guard. And there's women in the little side kitchen making uh, Dominican stew. And then you walk in and there's literally 20 people sitting around. You just, I've never been in a lawyer's office before. They're, they're just sitting there. They're just right. listening, talking, whatever. Documents everywhere. And then this guy, Johnny Puerto Real, is like the center of attention. Yeah. He's very charismatic and he's very kind of domineering. And every time he says something funny, they all laugh. Every time he gets mad, they all get, you know, he's like that. Right. But to me, he acts like he's my best friend, gives me a hug. And in in the DR, everybody takes photographs of everything. So I'm, I'm constantly in a stream of photographs with him and this guy and that guy and that guy. And basically, I'm trying to interview him about the inheritance but it's almost impossible to interview him because he just goes on these long, rambling stories about 
the 16th century and his childhood and how he fought in the revolution against the Americans when he was 12 years old and on and on and on and on and on. So getting the story of the inheritance out of him is not easy. And one of the most interesting parts of the story to me, because this is a in some ways a tale as old as time in terms of what ultimately, spoiler alert, is a huge con. But one of the things you discover along the way is that WhatsApp is at the center of the communication and gives you this window into this massive group that is hanging on every twist and turn. Absolutely. So I had never used WhatsApp before this, and I I, I came to realize how powerful it is in uh, developing nations. Uh, it's free. Uh, you can use it to take to make phone calls, but you can also use it the way people use Facebook in this country uh, to to create groups. Yeah. And so um, there were probably seven or eight groups of Rosa- of what I would call Rosario sites where they would just talk about, you know, oh, we're going to get the money tomorrow. Oh, we're going to get the money next week. Oh, we're going to be so rich. Oh, my goodness, it's not coming. How can they do this to us? You know, we love Puerto Real. We hate Puerto Real. All, all their – WhatsApp became not just a source of gossip, but a, a way to – a source of emotional – ups and downs. It's kind of how you could see them getting high. You could see them getting low. Um, you could really track the whole story practically through WhatsApp. And so there's this virtual emotional element. And at the same time, you go to all these places in part because this is where this lawyer has been going and you discover that, <laughs> you know, maybe even those trips aren't exactly what they seem to be. Right. So, just to be clear, um, when I started out on this, I knew that it was the longest of long shots that this inheritance existed. I had never didn't know anything about inheritance or dormant accounts or anything like that. And as I got into it, I started to think this can't be real. But as I thought it can't be real, then the next thought became, well, if it's not real, why is he doing this? Right. I didn't understand it because he was going to get 30% of their, of whatever he found but in the U.S., you don't get any money until you, right. you crack the case, you yeah. win the case. So um, I'm thinking this, and I'm trying to travel with them. I go, to, I go to Switzerland with them, and I go to Spain with them. And both times I realize they're supposed to have all these meetings with bankers. They don't have any meetings with bankers. They're actually kind of touring the whole time. They go to the bank a couple of times to drop off documents. Um, and then when I come back, I interview somebody who says – you know, I have to pay him to be a client. Right. And, you know, I can't, I, you know, it, it came to about $200 or something like that, which is a lot of money in the DR. You know, I have to pay him to give him power of attorney and I have to pay him when I turn in my documents for call, quote unquote, processing. Uh, so, you know, the light bulb goes on in my head. Now I understand. Right. So why he doesn't just want five or six or seven clients, he wants 25,000 clients. He wants 30,000 clients. And that to me, when I was reading, that was the thing that really just blew me away is this is not a family necessarily in the sense that maybe we would assume, you know, that this right. is not like a couple dozen people, some shirt tail cousins, you know, like out West, you know, right. Right. This is a vast network, as you say, tens of thousands of people who right. essentially are chasing this. Right, because it because it goes back five generations. So if you if you you know do the family trees for five generations, that can be an awful lot of people uh, in Spain, in the U.S., um, in Santo Domingo, in Cotui, the town of Cotui, uh, where there's a whole lot of rosarios, and on and on and on and on. That's right. And then the more people he gets, the more money he gets. And then he starts in on the Guzman family, which is Nelson's, which is the right. family that this begins with. And then he starts to add those people to, to his list of quote-unquote clients. So that's our Joe Nocera. We love talking to him, Jason. He's just such a great reporter, great writer. And I love that this story is one he's been tracking for years. Yeah, amazingly told, and he really followed this one all the way to the end of the line. 
So, Carol, this week it was the NCAA National Championship <gasps> game. March Madness coming to a close. Coming to a close. And that also meant there was a winner for our charity brackets. Brackets for a cause. The fifth year we raised more than $500,000. Amazing. And Jim Chanos, noted short seller, he came out on top after finishing dead last in 2018. And so there was this great narrative symmetry around it because University of Virginia, as you recall, right. went out. Very surprisingly, in the first round, the first one seed to lose to a 16 seed in 2018. And here they are in 2019. They're the champs. What was so funny, just kind of back and forth with you as we went through uh, the games, right? Because that, when they lost that game, everybody's like, "Uh uh-oh, okay, this really upends the brackets. Right. Well, and, you know, Duke losing along the Mm -hmm. way, University of North Carolina losing Kentucky. It really left it wide open. And Jim's charity? Uh, It's a charity called Medicines Dumont in Greece, and they are assisting the needy people who are coming in actually through all that migration that's coming into the country. What a great cause. And I just think the whole event, the whole charity brackets uh, is just wonderful. Well, and a couple other names who ended up placing second place, Bruce Flatt from Brookfield. He was the only one who actually had Texas Tech versus Virginia in the final. So props to him. And then... Paul Tudor Jones, he went to the University of Virginia. Of course, he's the founder of Robin Hood. That was his charity, so very special for him as well. All right, looking forward to next year when you guys do it all over again. So certainly one of the most talked about stories on Wall Street and beyond these days is the will they or won't they potential shotgun marriage of Deutsche Bank and Commerce Bank. It's a big story. We want to get into it with Ed Robinson. He joins us from London. So, Ed, what's the latest? But maybe before we get there, what's the backdrop here? Tell us about these banks and what they mean for Germany. Well, these these banks are the twin pillars of the financial system, the commercial banking financial system in Germany. So they're vital vital institutions, but they're also very weak institutions. Both banks have struggled to generate revenue growth, to generate profitability, to show the kind of strength and resilience that a lot of other European banks have started to produce after years of recovering after the crash. And it's funny, but it's the German banks, which many would think would be the strongest, that have actually become the laggards in the European banking scene. And why? What happened? Because you're exactly right on both counts, you know, that the assumption would be, you know, these are strong German banks. This is Deutsche Bank, especially uh, that should be at the heart of the financial system. And yet it has really fallen by the wayside, especially relative to some of its big U.S. competitors. So where did they go wrong? Well, looking at Deutsche Bank specifically, Uh, It essentially made a really big bet back in 2012, and that's what our story really focuses on, is this decision uh, kind of driven by the chairman, uh, Paul Lochleitner, who's still the chairman today, that while all the other European banks would adjust to the post-crash reality, all the new regulations, the, the capital that they had to set aside, the big changes, all of these other banks started downsizing and getting ready for this very different reality. But Ockleitner and Deutsche Bank decided, we're going to pounce. We're going to expand. We're going to grab all of the business that our rivals shed, and we will then become Europe's answer to Goldman Sachs. We will be a world-beating global investment bank. So that was... The decision, that was the chance that they took back in 2012. And now, all these years later, they're left in a situation where they have to really begin restructuring and reorganizing. And this is stuff they should have done, you know, six years ago. And so did they get it wrong because the market didn't come to them like they thought it would? Or is it an economic problem in Europe? Is it mismanagement? Where did it it really take a left turn? Mm. It's all of the above, all of the above. Uh, I mean, primarily what you had is a situation of a bank that was very disorganized, very fragmented in terms of its organization. So it's a bank that didn't really know what was going on in some of its far-flung units. That led to legal scandals. When you get legal scandals, that hits confidence. The shares get pounded. So that's one problem. 
On the other side, you've got a weak European economy. Remember the sovereign debt crisis. Remember interest rates went to zero. That's really bad news for a bank that depends on interest income to bolster its revenue. So it didn't get any help on the macro side as well. And then finally, you just have competition. I mean, the U.S. banks, Wall Street, really came back strong over the last few years. And increasingly, these banks, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, uh, Citigroup, they've been taking a lot of European customers that used to depend on Deutsche Bank and other Europeans. Now they're saying, whoa, why don't I just go with JPM? Why don't I just go with Bank of America? So I'd say those are, like, those are the three yeah. main forces that have really hit Deutsche Bank. And so let's talk about this proposed merger. It was rumored. Now it at least is a little bit out in the open. You have the German government, you know, potentially playing some sort of role, although they're being a bit coy about that all the way up to uh, Chancellor Merkel. Uh, Where do we see this playing out? Because as you alluded to earlier, this is not strength on strength with these two institutions. Right. The whole premise behind a potential merger of these two institutions is two weak banks somehow form a strong bank, which a lot of critics say, "Uh uh-uh, that doesn't really work. That doesn't compute, doesn't really add up. So you've got a situation, though, where the alternative, letting them continue on their own, might be worse. See, that's the issue, is both of these banks need some kind of transformative change to kind of get back on their feet, to get on stronger ground. And so this is almost kind of a swing for the fences type of of decision. And that's why it's really difficult to say at this point whether it actually happens. I mean, it seems like the momentum is for some kind of merger. But there could be a lot of cold feet at the end of the day. I mean, the number one issue is political. Yeah. I mean, if these two banks come together chances are they're going to have to fire between 20 and 30,000 branch managers, bank tellers, you know, ordinary bank workers in branches in Germany. And at the same time, especially with Deutsche, you could have a situation where investment bankers, highly paid investment bankers in London and New York, keep their jobs. Those are bad optics. That is not a good look, and that's a real political problem, and we just don't know how that's going to break. And that's Ed Robinson joining me from London. He's been following the ins and outs of this Deutsche Commerce Bank story, Mm. and ultimately this is a story about, as you said, Germany's largest bank so intimately tied to the political scene, the economic scene, and it is fast moving. In the solutions section, Jason, we're going to look at retirement from a couple different angles. It's an important topic, obviously front of mind for so many people. You and I, I feel like almost every day we have this conversation where it's like, do I look at my 401k? Maybe not. (laughs) Maybe I should. Maybe I should. Uh, But retirement savings Mm -hmm. is really, really important. So how do you tackle a subject like this, Dimitri Kessanides? Uh, well, we try to come at it from maybe some unexpected angles, but I think that one thing we wanted to do was look at this wisdom that's out there and advice that's very solid advice, which is save early, save early, save early. Well, save early. You've got kids. They're in college. They cost money. They cost a lot of money. Maybe you were laid off. Maybe you changed jobs. You didn't really know what direction you were heading into. So are you really doomed by the time you're 60 if you haven't quite saved enough or 55? Um, and so Chris Farrell, who uh, once upon a time was a Business Week staffer and is very expert in these things. He has a new book out now about a lot of this stuff as well. Um, takes a look at this idea that actually, you know, you can really make up for some time once the kids are gone, that mm-hmm. empty nesters are especially well positioned because that's a huge expense, like a huge expense that's gone. And so not to say that suddenly you're not going to be freed up to spend on yourself a little bit or splurge because that's another thing empty nesters look forward to, but tuitions and clothing allowances and food feeding young hungry kids <laughs> um, really is a substantial chunk. And when you pull a lot of that out, you can increase your savings substantially and really make up for some of that lost time. And that's the point, right? right. Just up it big time. Just up it big time. You know, you'll work out whatever the percentage is going to be right for you based on where you're at, what your age are. I mean, by empty nesters, we're roughly targeting people who are in their early 60s, but the ra- the range, uh, the age range can span, you know, several years. And, um, you know, work out with if you have a financial advisor. And, and, and the key is, you know, don't just throw up your hands and say, that's it. 
Right. I'm not 45. I'm not 40 or 35. Right. And what am I going to do now? I'm really going to be sort of destitute and poor in my old age. I have to say this number blew my mind. Average 401k today for those nearing retirement, I guess in 2016, I guess this is the number that everybody's working with, 135000 So that works out to about $600 a month. Yeah, very little. That you would what be does, living on. What, wow. Where can you live for $600 a month, right? Right. right. I mean, it's uh, when uh, the closer any of us get to even observing older parents who are going through stuff, $600 a month doesn't cover, let's say you have a helper for one of your older parents or whatever it is. So yeah, $600 a month is really not a lot. Um, So you're looking at, you know, pulling out more, maybe extending. This is how this, uh, this one connects a little bit to the first story is extending perhaps the number of years that you're working. We're being so civilized. We're just telling everybody you're going to be working forever. Forever. (laughs) Um, You know, and that, uh, that is definitely not, necessarily um, uh, a positive message, but it is. I mean, actually, because longevity is, you know, uh, is such, we're living longer. Um, We're living, I think, in some ways healthier and people who are older are um, sort of, you know, maintaining their health in very different ways than people 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, And and people really uh, more and more are um, used to this idea that like work actually can be good for you, that the brain sort of engagement, that Mm -hmm. the engagement with other human beings. um, So I don't think it's all a negative, but basically um, the story that we also confront in this section this month, this is really a story about the companies that are confronting the baby boom brain drain. And it's a significant one. You know, you have so many millions of people that are going to be leaving the workforce over the next several years. And yet, taboo really is this subject of retirement and approaching people that you know in the workplace, whether you're a manager, an HR person, a team member Mm -hmm. of that person and saying, hey, when are you thinking of actually hitting the golf course full time? (laughs) You know, you really can't have those. You can have the conversations. That's what we're talking about. But you have to approach them strategically. And you have to really think about the ways in which as a company, you are going to devise a strategy that's sort of a safe space to talk about this so that you can plan and the individual can plan. Well, and you make a really good point in this story. Carol Heimowitz, uh, again, a Mm -hmm. former colleague here, uh, wrote this piece. And what's really interesting, and it ties to the other one, is this isn't binary in a lot of cases. It's not just like you're here and then you're gone. It's okay. You're not going to be doing your exact same job. There could be a variation on that. Could be part time. It could be some sort of arrangement that's worked out that's not Sort of. Goodbye. Yeah. yeah I mean, you, you know, you might be very interested in working part time, but you haven't raised that because nobody's really approached the conversation with you. And in your head, you're thinking, gee, I really don't want to stop working entirely. So I guess I'm just going to keep working. Whereas the company is thinking this person could help us train new people as they right. come in or we have another position that's really more appropriate for a part time position. So it'll be surprising to all the parties involved that there are options. Is this something that's widespread at every single company in America right now? No. But you are seeing more and more big companies who, again, are confronting this sort of exodus of people and saying, how are we going to do this? And what they're doing first is identifying options and then finding ways to engage in those conversations and and, and not make somebody right. feel like they're being put on the spot and they're being pushed out the door because they don't want to push them out. Right. Mm-hmm. And clearly, I mean, this plays into sort of how we work as well. If it means you're not coming into the office every day, you know, I mean, I think so many people have this candidly sort of antiquated view of work it's like i will come in i will come in at nine and then i will leave at five and i will be in the office five days a week um right but that's not how no i mean work has changed you know we were saying that about the story before and also this story i mean over the last couple of decades how we work and how we think about work and how we engage in it has changed dramatically so technology and the ability to work remotely um to really you know, think about the tasks involved in a job and how they get done. It's changed a lot. And the expectation isn't across the board, clock in, nine o'clock, time card, five o'clock out, and we don't see you or hear from you for those hours in between. Um, and that's the only way that you can do it is if you show up at the factory. So so it's really free, freeing and liberating in a way. I know that the idea of saying to somebody, you're going to work till you're 80 or 75 Sorry. might no, not sound liberating. But, but and I also love this whole idea 
idea of the old and young kind of working yeah. together, right? The older workers are learning about technology, new ways of doing things. Yeah. The, o- the older workers can say, well, this is how, you know, can, can share their knowledge of the Back industry. Back in my day. <laughs> right. what, do they mean? what do they call them? They call them legacy builders at yeah. a company. I mean, these are valuable employees who have learned a lot. Exactly. Back in my day. Um, yeah. And, but they're figuring out how to kind of share information right. and Give learn and from take, one another. For sure. That's editor Demetra Kessanides, and I love how they look at retirement. Two different angles. If you haven't saved enough, they said, don't worry, you can keep working after the kids have, you know, you've put them through college. And then just looking at what companies are doing, looking at the brain drain, as we see a lot of baby boomers getting ready to retire. Well, and what I love about this story is it's a reminder that these choices are not binary. You know, it's a new world and people are thinking about work and thinking about retirement in all different ways. Yeah, Jason, President Trump's trade policies have really been challenging for American farmers. That's right. From lost markets to stocks of unsold grains, the ag industry says it will be dealing with the consequences of this trade spat between D.C. and Beijing for years to come. Bloomberg trade reporter Sean Donnan wrote the story this week, and he's got all the details. All right. So Sean Donnan telling stories about trade. Let's start with the simple apple, the Cosmic Crisp, because that helped me really start to understand how all of this is starting to play through to American farmers. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things we always forget with trade and the trade wars is that they're happening in a context and that there is a broader economy going on. And that if you're a farmer or a manufacturer, you have a reality that you're dealing with. And in the farm industry in Washington state, uh, this is the, the biggest exporter, the biggest producer of, of apples in the United States. They're going through this amazing uh, transformation right now, which all hangs on this kind of wonder apple, the cosmic crisp. And so they're ripping out old orchards of red, delicious gala apples. The kind of apples that you don't buy in the supermarket anymore because you, like a lot of American consumers, uh, have lo- don't like those apples anymore. Right. We're all about the Honeycrisp or the Fuji uh, nowadays. And the Cosmic Crisp is 20 years in development, and they are putting in new orchards uh, to the point where a few years from now, they will be one in six apples that come out of Washington State will be these Cosmic Crisps. And the whole idea is addressing changing consumer tastes, finding a higher margin apple and and so on. But this has all gotten hung up in the trade wars because uh, exports from Washington State, which is a big business, they export to India, China, Mexico is actually the biggest export market, have all been hit uh, by tariffs. And that has meant less revenues. And for a lot of these family-owned businesses, that means less capital to invest right. in new orchards and the Cosmic Crisp. All right. So, and what are the farmers saying to you? Like, what... what when you get down to brass tacks, are they having to spend less on uh, these new capital investments, as they say? And, and what are the ramifications there? No, so absolutely. So I, I sat down with a guy called Sean Gilbert. He's a 38-year-old former college baseball pitcher uh, who took over the family business last year. It's a 100-plus-year-old uh, family business called Gilbert Orchards. They have like 2,000 acres of orchards. Last year, they were planning to renovate or replant 180 uh, acres of orchards. Instead, they went for 120. That's a third less than they were planning. That's a third less uh, productive orchards two, three years from now uh, that will generate kind of higher value, higher margin apples, and therefore more revenues. Because as you say, this isn't just about flipping a switch. These are decisions that have to be made that have implications years in the making. Yeah. And this is one of the biggest impacts we've seen from this trade wars. And it's this really hard one to quantify is how do you quantify a factory that hasn't been built right. or people that haven't been hired to go into that factory? And we've heard a lot of those sorts in earnings calls. You hear uh, big C, big company CEOs talking about all the time. And if you get right down to it in farm country, it's about that new orchard. Or I was in uh, Louisiana talking to a soybean farmer there called Richard Fontenot. And Richard Fontenot is not buying, is not going to spend 300000 dollars this year on a new combine for his farm because he lost three hundred thousand dollars last year uh, in the form of a thousand acres of soybeans he had to leave in the field. Right. So how does this all come together in the aggregate politically? Are we seeing an inflection point in this trade war, this trade discussion? 
So one of the fascinating things is the the way the farm farmers have reacted to the trade wars politically. A lot of them voted for Trump in 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 2016, and you know what? A lot of them are sticking with him right now, and that's a function of uh, what he's done on tax reform, what he's done on deregulation. There's things like the use of water uh, that uh, uh, he's loosened up the regulations for that, which is very important to farms, obviously. Uh, and so all of that means you still have a lot of residual support for Trump there. But there's a kind of time limit on that. And that gets into the economic impact of, of, of these trade wars. You know, it feels like we've been talking about the trade wars forever, but economically, we're only just starting to see a lot of and, and understand a lot of the economic consequences and impact of that. And that's true on, on, on the farm. And you talk to the farmers and they say, you know, last year was the worst I've had in a long time. I'm still with him now. But if I have another year like this, I'm not sure I'm going to stick around. And that means there's a lot of pressure on President Trump to cut these deals with China, Mm. uh, to get the USMCA, this new NAFTA through Congress and so on. And so would that, with those deals, USMCA getting ratified by Congress, something meaningful happening with China, would that alleviate some of what you saw in this reporting? So the hope down on the farm is that there is a kind of bounty or at the end of the rainbow that the trade wars will will generate a, a boom uh, to come. A guy called Richard Fontenot, that soybean farmer yeah. I was with in, in, in Louisiana, he also farms rice. He's hoping that, that, that uh, Donald Trump can open up the rice market uh, in China. That means that's big, you know, yeah. for, for, for a Louisiana rice farmer. Uh, and that's one of the reasons he's willing to stick with the president. And that's Sean Donnan. Happy to catch up with him in New York. He really sees the whole picture of trade. And what I loved about this is very specific examples talking to people whose everyday lives have been affected by the trade war. Right. They're being impacted. Always love to be on the cutting edge of everything new and different. But sometimes what's old is new, apparently. Listen up. That's how we get into Pursuits this week. Chris Rouser here with us. All right. I, w- I would go to a bar like this and hang out with you. Right? Yeah. You Okay. So the opener in this section is called, uh, it's about listening bars, which are bars that you go to. You can have drinks, you can have food, but really the primary purpose of being there is to listen to music. And if you want to try one out, uh, you can, because there's one in Gowanus. Um, they just built Public Records, which is a new place. Beautiful space, kind of lofty space, uh, bright and airy. And you go and you sit and chat quietly with your friends and you listen to vinyl. Right. Well, and one of the things that you guys talk about in this story is this whole notion of like the volume of voices versus the volume of the music. It's got to be a little bit of a balance there, maybe in a way that is refreshing to those of us of a certain age who are tired of going and yelling at our dining companions. Yeah. So, um, you know, Richard Vines, our restaurant critic and London loves to go into restaurants with a decibel meter and measure how loud they are because restaurants are getting louder and louder. They play music louder to sort of get over the din. Then you have to shout over the music. Um, And so when we did this story, this was the first that I had sort of really learned about listening bars, but a lot of people on my team are cooler than I am and they had known about it. So my question was, okay, so you go to a bar, it's got a great hi-fi system, they play vinyl. Are you not allowed to talk? And the answer is no, you can talk. Um, And, you know, your people sort of keep conversation quiet um, and not too loud. But because of, you know, sonic paneling and these great um, sound systems, it's really a pleasure to listen to what's around you. Right. And why do you think, you know, as a as a consumer and a connoisseur of so many of these, you know, new trends, like why now for this? Well, you know, it's one of those things that we learned from the Japanese, actually. It's sort of why it started coming here. There's a bar called Bar Shiru in Oakland, which is basically the owners were in Tokyo. And they saw these kinds of bars there, which are very popular. Uh, and they were like, Kisaten, oh. is that what they're called? I don't know. <laughs> um, no. Yeah. And, you know, it's in the Ebisu district or this one that they that they really loved. Um, and they were like, I can't believe this doesn't exist in, in New York or in America. Like, it, it should be a place to go and really get a break, Yeah, uh, which is what bars sort of are and this is just a different way of of catching a break and also people love sound and love sound systems and and you know they're not super expensive for a a bar to invest in but maybe expensive for you to invest in in your house so it's another way to kind of appreciate music well and i loved the fact that one of the founders of this bar out in oakland actually worked at pandora and so you know he understands i guess we are creating a different and maybe deeper relationship with music or at least a different relationship with music as we're 
we're all walking around with it in our ears all the times and curating uh, our playlists and, and whatnot. Yeah. And one thing that he talked about, too, as, as a person from Pandora, like the playlist is prime. But, you know, albums used to be created to listen to right. beginning to end. Right. There's not a lot of situ- and that's just not how music is served to you anymore. It's all algorithmic. It's a mix. Um, it's playlists that are played to you at your desk at work. And so this is another way of kind of taking the time to listen to albums from beginning to end the way they were meant to be listened to. Well, and the pictures are beautiful. I guess this is the this is the place in L.A. Oh, no, this is Brooklyn Public Records yeah. uh, in Brooklyn. Um, yeah. So we've got In Sheep's Clothing, which is in L.A., Barshiru in Oakland. Uh, and then there's even one uh, that we talked to, that we went to in Bali, Studio Exotica, which is very cool. Because why wouldn't you go yeah. to Bali for uh, a reporting trip? All right. So let's talk about Nikki Eckstein. She's got a great piece uh, in this week's magazine, this pursuit section about doTERRA, essential oils. And I love many of the things that she talks about here, but Part of the way these essential oils are being sold is essentially multi-level marketing, right? It is, yeah. So we get sent a lot of different products to try, and we've always been curious about and skeptical of essential oils, which are essentially distillates from plants, uh, things like lavender, mint, basil, uh, that you can apply mostly externally, um, which you know are supposed to have effects. They're supposed to make you relax. They're supposed to give you energy. They're supposed to make you feel better, relieve pain. Um, and because a lot of people don't understand them, this company, doTERRA, has found success selling them with a multi-level marketing uh, setup. So, you know, it, it, it's you get you sell them, you get other people to sell them. Right. And um, they've reached uh, 1.5 billion in sales every year, which is big. Well, and this is multi-level marketing postmodern in the sense that it's Instagram and, yeah. you know, social media driven in, in large part, because not only can you, you know, sell it, but you can show yourself probably being fabulous, you know, using it, right? exactly. Yeah. And, you know, of course, as we know, Instagram and social media are incredibly effective ways of marketing. Now this company is actually kind of taking, there's not a lot of science behind this. Right. It's all tradition, heritage, and anecdotal evidence. And so now they're actually putting some research behind it because they don't actually know how much you're supposed to use, how often you're supposed to use it to make it most effective. So now they're really trying to kind of prove it after they've already right. started making all the money. Well, and don't you think that this is sort of of a piece with everything we're hearing from the big consumer companies around CBD, especially oh, and everybody yeah. infusing CBD? Um, I feel like, uh, you know, probably once a week we have someone coming into our uh, daily radio show and Carol just sticks out her hand and they, you know, like <laughs> rubs some CBD it, something. Some, something on uh, on her hands. And then the rest absolutely. of the show goes great. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's very chill. Yeah, yeah it's absolutely. I mean, CBD is in everything from hair products to skin products to toenail polish like you and we don't know that it works right. in, in most of those scenarios so yeah you know people are just desperate for the next hot thing and wellness is such an incredibly huge industry now yeah. um, that these people are all jumping on it all right well one of our other favorites kate crater um you know leave it to her to write about grasshoppers from a food perspective. Yes. Uh, so There's a fancier name, of <laughs> course, but they're grasshoppers. Yeah, so we um, do a regular feature called Insider Ingredient where Kate, who's a genius and knows every chef, uh, she figures out kind of what the new hot ingredients that you're going to come see coming up in the next year. And she's just been seeing grasshoppers everywhere uh, or chapulines, um, which are, you know, people eat bugs all over the world. Americans are kind of the few people who are so hesitant about it. It's a, it's a very sustainable, uh, great protein source. And particularly in Mexico, in, in Oaxaca, um, chapulines are like a very popular snack. They're in a lot of different... Um, you can just buy baskets of them at the market. And now, um, you know, Renee Redzepi has started using them. Uh, TJ Steele at Claro in Brooklyn puts them in a vinaigrette. And we're just kind of seeing them cropping up all throughout the U.S. Do you eat them? I have not. You know, it's funny. Kate... Uh, we tested out this this salad dressing, and Kate uh, <laughs> Kate's a great recipe tester, so she did it, and she was like, "It tastes gross." I mean, no, sorry, it doesn't taste gross. It tastes good. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you want to make sure you puree it very right. thoroughly, otherwise you've got legs and stuff. Right, kind of like a little bit of a crunch dressing. that you well, know. The crunch is good. You know, like if you eat them as a snack, you're kind of looking at what you're you know yeah. you sort of know what you're getting, and yeah. they're very popular. Actually, um, they sell them uh, at. Um, in Seattle, actually, at T-Mobile Park, where the Mariners play. And it's a really popular snack there. Um, 
but kind of when you grind them up, it can be a little bit visually startling. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, so you got some armchairs, uh, some chairs that they're you know we talk about maximalism in many aspects of life, but these are these are big chairs. These are not fitting in a tiny New York studio, I would imagine. Yeah, we have a story uh, photo spread that is about fat chairs, <laughs> and we've been talking about fat chairs for a long time in in our office, and um, they're just like really puffy, bulbous. Uh, armchairs and it's a it's a trend in design it's been around for a while but now it's becoming really hot um, and you know for anything from $2,500 to $20,000 you can get a high design chair often they're very low to the ground they're almost like beanbag chairs with big puffy arms like the kids you know uh, in your second grade classroom uh, but they're just like really they're actually really cute to look at and uh, very comfortable right yeah I mean the the pictures are I mean they, they do make me want to just like sit and you know watch like a TV. ball pit just yeah, jump in just, it yeah. Like jump in and sort of uh, sink in. All right. So Devin Leonard also has a book review of sorts. This is a book about the internet. I feel like there are a lot of them coming out right now. This is about a guy who bought sex.com. Yeah, so this is a, an early internet story that kind of speaks to sort of broader trends. It's about this guy, Gary Kremen, who was an er, early on recognized that domain names would be valuable real estate. And so he picked up a bunch of uh, important ones, Match.com, Autos.com, and Sex.com, which obviously was going to be a huge one. Um, and he developed Match.com, actually. Uh, but Sex.com was stolen from him in an elaborate con. And the book is about his many-year battle to get it back uh, because it became quite a, a successful business. And when he eventually won the battle, he won uh, uh, over $60 million. And, you know, that court case actually uh, was important in terms of policy as far as the internet goes because it's it ruled that domain names are, are property and you can own them. Right. Uh, and so what's the takeaway from this book, you think? I feel like we're, we're thinking so much about the role of the internet, the role of tech companies mm-hmm. uh, in our lives right now. Maybe this is the seedier side? Well, so these, the characters in this book, Gary and, and sort of the villain of the book, Stephen Michael Cohen, are very, they have, they break all the rules. They're kind of, um, they kind of cheat, they kind of scam. Um, and they, but then Gary, when when push comes to shove, he needs there for there to be rules. So it kind of speaks to this culture in Silicon Valley and, and in the internet where it's like, we break all the rules until we need the rules. Yes. And then and then we fight for the rules. So, like, you see that uh, with Travis Kalanick. You see it with Facebook particularly. Like, they want to uh, operate without rules until they need the rules. Right. Um, and, you know, we, it's still going on today. That's Pursuits editor Chris Rouser. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio. That's live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast for the ride home. Get that at iTunes. Tunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. And of course, you can get this week's edition of the magazine. That is on newsstands now. We'll be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.